Hello, and welcome to a special edition of The Partial Historians. Woo! Yeah. I am Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. Welcome. Indeed. We are turning 90. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. You look so good for 90. And I feel a day over 89. <laughs> oh, you're fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So we thought we'd uh, take a bit of a break from our fabulous narrative and bring you something a little unusual. Mm, I'm intrigued, Dr. Radness. New Year's gift. So, Dr. G, you might be aware that a couple of weeks ago I took a young stepdaughter of mine to see the Spartacus Ballet. Oh, I'm so jealous. I know, it was pretty cool. Um, and it was something I was aware of, but I didn't think I'd ever actually get to see it because it's not put on like all that often. You know, it's not your, it's not your Swan Lake uh, in Australia. <laughs> so I was very excited that I got to see it. And so we thought we might do a special episode focusing on the ballet. Oh, I'm excited. Because everything is beautiful at the ballet. Only people who have seen Chorus Line will get that. <laughs> but I feel like the combination of your knowledge of Spartacus and my love of ballet... Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually did ballet, which is more than I can say. Anyway, so let's begin. I thought to start off with, we might chat very quickly about who is Spartacus and why on earth do we care about his ballet? Because uh, our people listening might not have heard our previous episodes on Spartacus. I thought he was a slave, not a dancer. <laughs> Can't you be both? I think you can. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so Spartacus was someone who comes to our attention because he led uh, a revolt against Rome in 73 BC. So that's in the, the late Republic. As far as we can piece together, he was a gladiator. He was in a gladiatorial school, or a ludus, in Capua when he decided to break free of his chains and challenge Roman <laughs> authority. Shedding uh, the shackles of slavery exactly. for freedom. Yeah. We don't know a lot about him before then because, of course, why would the Romans care about him before then? Um, as far as we can tell, he may have been uh, someone who deserted from the Roman army fighting as an auxiliary of some kind. Yeah, it's a big maybe, though, I think. It is a big maybe. He was possibly also from Thrace, but we're not sure if when they say he was a Thracian, he was actually from Thrace or he just fought in the Thracian style as a gladiator. Ah, uh, yes. And we also get that sort of like little hint from Plutarch yes. in the life of Crassus where it's like he was more Hellenic than Thracian. Exactly. Like, ooh, a Greek, what you say. What the hell does that mean? Exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there's a, a lot of question marks, but nonetheless, he leads this revolt. He breaks out along with several other gladiators, perhaps about 723. Mm. Um, and they fight their way to freedom. They take up refuge at, Ma at Mount Vesuvius. And they end up attracting more and more followers as they have success after success against the Roman military forces. It's pretty amazing. They managed to defeat the Romans for a couple of years. Yeah, this goes on for quite some time. They keep sending legates out and men of higher rank. They start sending praetors. That doesn't work either. Nope. They start sending consuls. Woofed. <laughs> it's only when you get to Crassus, the <laughs> richest man in Rome at the time. Or so we are led to believe that they are finally brought down. Yeah, so yeah. though I, I believe Pompey steals Crassus's thunder as well at some oh, point. Oh, he tries. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, he does he try. I still give Crassus a lot of the credit for, I don't know, credit? Is that the right word? Credit <laughs> for bringing down a freedom fighter? Boo. Yeah, yeah boo. Anyway, um, anyway, so in 71 BC, the slave revolt is brought to a close. And that is the last really large scale slave revolt that the Romans face, which is crazy because obviously they're 
society endures for quite a number of Yeah, this is considered the centuries. worst of the Servile Wars, isn't it, in this period? I think because it's on the mainland, whereas the previous ones had taken place on Sicily, so there was a, you know, a buffer zone. Namely, the sea. <laughs> there's nothing more offensive, I suppose, than having slaves in your own backyard. There's definitely, yeah, there's definitely, and there's also definitely a sense that, uh, or at least a mention in our source material, that they may have considered marching on Rome itself. So it is a bit scary and close to home, I think. Yeah, yeah. And we do have this sense in which that they're moving around a lot. Um, oh yeah, they seem to be yeah. a highly mobile force, much quicker than, say, the Roman army yes um even though they're well trained and seem to have some pretty rigorous uh, well, procedures in place for I, getting places yeah i think in a sense that's why some people believe this story that spartacus may have been an auxiliary in the roman army because they think that he might have used you know the tactics that he learnt uh to help fight the romans for so long and be successful for so long but obviously that's that's just guesswork you know yeah. it has a, it's, it's commonsensical but yeah, 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 but we just don't know for sure. No, I mean, he um, was also trained to fight as a gladiator. Maybe that has something to do with it. I feel like my yeah. real big question is, is how do you take a narrative like this and turn it into a ballet? This is an excellent <laughs> question. Okay, so let's do this. Um, so the reason why I'm kind of excited to do this as a special episode is uh, dedicated listeners may be aware that I did my doctoral thesis on Spartacus, the Kubrick film from 1960 which is based on a 1951 novel by Howard Fast. So it's all very American-focused in general. But Spartacus the Ballet, <laughs> and yes, I shall continue to say that, but, um, is based on a work that actually emerged um, from Stalinist Russia. And it's around the same time that Howard Fast was writing his novel. So I find it really interesting. It's going to allow us to look at a very different perspective oh i'm actually really excited yeah. stalinist russia wow okay yeah. <laughs> in that vein i would like if you'd be so kind dr g to take a bit of a back step and talk about spartacus's journey <laughs> to stalinist russia oh yes please do <laughs> how does how does spartacus legend revolter yeah. out of slavery and freedom fighter become somehow embroiled in stalinist russia well okay Spartacus pops up a lot um, from, a, from you know, roughly the Enlightenment sort of mid-18th century. Spartacus pops up a lot in a number of different contexts, um, you know, someone who's fighting against oppressors, you know, as a freedom fighter, as we were saying. So he's become a symbol in the West as well as in Russia, which, I mean, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it the East, but it is kind of more Eastern, I suppose, than Western Europe. <laughs> Eastern Europe. We East, can call yeah, it Eastern, Eastern Europe. Europe. Yeah, exactly. So he's popped up in a number of places, you know, looking at places like Voltaire and in that sort of thing. So he's been used by a number of different people. So he's he's in the popular consciousness, I suppose, is a good way of looking okay. at it. Yeah, so it's not like he only turns up in, mm. you know, in Russia or he only turns up in the US. Because part of my speculation, yeah. and perhaps you'll dismiss this as a completely ignorant question. Huh. Uh, <laughs> wait ready. for it. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> my knowledge on Spartacus is nowhere near yours. <laughs> um, but I believe that Spartacus was also a figure of interest to Karl Marx. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And then I'm wondering if maybe this is the connection into Stalinist Russia. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. 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 Um, but he's talked, this is the thing, Spartacus turns up in a lot, not, not just Karl Marx. I mean, Karl Marx mentions him, but he's not like a focus of Karl Marx's works um, but he does turn up in a number of texts that uh, and histories that would be used and appeal to people who were taking up sort of a communist socialist leaning in the latter part of, uh, of the um, 1800s 
um, notably, if anyone's interested in looking at it, um, if you look up the work, the work of, uh, of Ward, W-A-R-D, that's the one. <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he is definitely in the consciousness, I think, okay. of, of the world at this point in time of, in, uh, in Europe. And the Soviets go a little Spartacus crazy when we get into the early 1900s. And, and that really continues all throughout um, the early 20th century. I mean, even to this day, really. There, there are towns named after him. There are lots of football teams named after him, although it's obviously not Spartacus, it's Spartak. Oh, Spartak. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. the Soviet bloc version of the Olympics would eventually be called the Spartakiade. Oh, wow. Yeah, so okay, he's, this he's, guy's everywhere. Yeah, this, they, they really take him up, um, you know, in, in, a, in a big way. Um, and they're, of course, aware of other socialist movements that are picking him up. It's, of course, around the time of uh, the revolution in 1917 and 1918, obviously, in Russia, that in Germany, you've got a, a group called the Spartacus Bund who are trying to gather support and stage a bit of a revolution in Germany at the end of the First World mm. War. So, I was going to say, because they're the ones that lead into the sort of nascent Communist Party, are they not? In Germany, yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. And it's really interesting because at first Lenin, who of course was at the forefront of the Russian Revolution, was quite critical of the people who were the leaders of the Spartacus Bund. Um, yeah, I know, right? Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebschnicht. Um, but, that was me lifting my jaw off the floor. <laughs> yeah, but once they were murdered, they actually became... Like, Lenin actually commissioned a whole bunch about, of busts of people he considered to be heroic. Spartacus was at the forefront, and so were Rosa and Karl once they had been murdered and sort of become martyrs for the cause. That sounds a little bit like propaganda to me. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, so basically the, the revolution obviously happens in Russia, um, and it's not an easy... It's not an easy time to be in Russia because there are going to it's going to be a total change in terms of the culture, the political system. Everything is changing in the 1920s, and I think we're all aware of that. Lenin himself, of course, doesn't really isn't able to follow through perhaps as much as he might have liked because he dies in 1924, not long after the revolution had taken place. And we're probably all aware, if we're history lovers, of the guy that ends up stepping up and taking his place, one of the people that had been at his side. Stalin, man of steel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I mean, anybody who's interested in this period of history is well aware that this is a thorny subject. The transition of Leninism into Stalinism exactly, is, yeah. is horrific on a number of levels. Yeah, and there is quite a shift because um, Lenin had, obviously, any, any new form of government does need to legitimize itself somehow. Lenin had certain ways of doing this. Spartacus was sometimes a part of that. So, you know, they had like new festivals and that kind of stuff that they would design. But Stalin had different ways of doing that. He was much more focused on the present, what is happening now in Russia. So you can see the, the, the shift that would happen in terms of the way that they thought they were going to establish their regimes. Okay, so yeah. we've got this like legend of Spartacus in the background playing Definitely. out on this... Yeah. While the political stage is really quite disrupted. Yeah, and that's and the thing. Sort it's, of figure it's, of continuity, perhaps? Yeah, and, and obviously Spartacus isn't going to be um, always at the forefront because, you know, there's political stuff to worry about. Um, because Stalin couldn't just step into Lenin's position unchallenged. He had other things to attend to. Um, it's really, obviously, the 1920s is quite a period... Sorry, the later part of the 1920s in Russia is quite a period of political unrest, which we don't really need to go into by the 1930s, um, we're starting to get a little bit more stability, largely because of, you know... <laughs> Some purges, I Some believe. Purges. yeah, exactly. Um, when we talk about stability... Uh... <laughs> yeah, stability in terms of the elimination of opposition has been taking place, yeah. 
But as a result of this, um, when things start to calm down, um, Spartacus comes back into the fore a little bit um, in terms of they ha- the regime has to decide what, what kind of history they're going to sanction. And Spartacus is a particular area of contention. Mm-hmm. There's a group of people who look at Spartacus as being, you know, the person who is leading the way in terms of um, the proletariat. You know, he's this great leader figure that people can look up to. And he's an early, um, you know, setting up an early sort of form of revolution like they've seen in Russia. But there are people who are, of course, looking much more at what are the primary sources actually saying <laughs> and what can we actually, you know... Are you telling me there's historians still alive in yeah, this place? Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. But this is the thing. It becomes, it becomes such... Uh, I mean, this is, it sounds crazy. My students never believe me when I say this. Taking the wrong line on Spartacus could end up getting you into some serious hot water. So, for example, there was um, a historian who was writing in the early 1930s whose name, I believe, was Batinov. Please forgive my pronunciation if that's um, incorrect. He was a Marxist historian, but he argued that Spartacus's slave uprising had not been a class conflict. Um, and as a result of this and other sorts of claims that he made, he ended up falling victim during the purges. I think that's a very interesting position to take just yeah. as a Marxist to then argue that something is not a class conflict because what we tend to see with Marxists is that they prioritise everything in terms of the class conflict. Well, I, I mean, this is the thing. Clearly, he was looking at it... I mean, yeah, he would say things like it's it's not about... Um, it's not about like a particular ideology that the slaves were were pursuing. It was more um, a sort of romantic longing, you know, for freedom. I don't necessarily agree with all his claims, but I certainly don't think that he should have, you know. <laughs> I don't think anybody should die for having yeah. a particular interpretation of spot. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you can see through that those sorts of examples um, that there was a real dispute about how to write the history of Spartacus in Stalinist Russia, you know. And certainly there were people like Mishulin. <laughs> Who believed that the slaves had set up like this, like they had this absolute ideology that they were pursuing, which was about nationalizing and collectivizing the land, and they were a very organized force, which I think we would probably recognize as reading into things a little bit in a way that's convenient to. <laughs> you do what you got to do with the source material, really. <laughs> yeah, but even up until 1956, which was just after the death of Stalin, um, and uh, you know, 1956 was of course the time when Khrushchev, Khrushchev, God, okay. One more time, Khrushchev <laughs> gave um, his speech that sort of started to expose the Stalinist regime for what it really was. But even at that time, a lot of Soviet textbooks that referred to Spartacus and his uprising talked about it in terms of being a terrible blow from which Rome never recovered. So, oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's maybe taking the narrative a little bit too far yeah. in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah, so I, whilst I wouldn't say that obviously Spartacus is... It's you know, the first sign of the collapse of the Republic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, looking at it in terms of it being, um, whilst having to acknowledge that, yes, the slaves failed, it was a moral victory. Now, that's actually not too dissimilar, I don't think, to the way that people in America who were sympathetic to a communist persuasion looked at it. I actually kind of think that's how Kubrick's movie ends up making you feel, because they felt like, well, you can't tell this story where the hero loses and dies um, I think you definitely get that sense so there, there is some overlap here it's not completely different but that's just a very rough idea of how Spartacus is quite a contentious topic he certainly wasn't like the only thing that they were worrying about but the nature of his actions and his life I think made him a figure of interest um, and something where ideology mattered 
So definitely that's the sort of the backdrop in Stalin's yeah, Russia. Yeah. And yeah. there's something about this story that continues to hold appeal for, for, sure. for, for people through time. So this resurgence of Spartacus in these different areas of Europe and the way that they're thinking about it in different ways as well. Yeah. And it's like this focus on people power and what does that mean when somebody who is outside of the structures yes. of governance attempts to do something that is asking the structure to change. I think that's why he's always a figure of interest mm. and, and he has become such a, a hero of the oppressed kind of type of character, I suppose. Anyway, so that's the backdrop. Okay, now we're going to be... some heady backdrop, eh? Yeah, I know. I know. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Let me just do a quick pirouette. <laughs> okay, so it's against this backdrop that we have the ballet of Spartacus being created. Wow. Okay. Now, obviously, if you can see the kinds of difficulties that historians had working under the Soviet regime, you can appreciate that artists had the same sorts of issues in that they had to tow the company line. But it was very unpredictable. Depending on what was happening at the time, you could find yourself in and out of favor, you know, very, very quickly indeed. Um, so the person who we're going to be focusing on today, a man named Aram Kachaturian, who created the Spartacus Ballet, much like other composers who are well known from this time period, like Shostakovich and Prokofiev, um, found themselves, you know, at one moment, the darlings of the regime, at other moments, damned. <laughs> Okay, and this is quite serious. Um, obviously, if you were denounced, if your work was denounced, then you could be imprisoned, you could be exiled to Siberia, your work wouldn't be performed potentially, and they're probably the best case scenarios. <laughs> you could get worse, but yeah, not, not for these guys. Um, and the thing is, it wasn't always due to your actual work, in the sense that often the people who were judging artists, they were committees made up of less successful artists. Oh, oft. Okay, yeah. okay. You're being judged by your lesser peers. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. So there was also the, the chance that your work was actually fine as far as the regime was concerned, but the committee decided it wasn't because the people there were, you know, jealous or held a grudge or something because you were successful. Yeah, so... Interesting. Anyway, the man of the moment, Aram Kachaturian. He was born in 1903. He was actually born in Georgia, like Stalin, but to Armenian parents. Oh, okay. Yeah. That might get controversial for him at some point in this narrative. Exactly. Um, and he seemed to have a natural gift for music. It wasn't originally what he pursued in terms of study, but he ended up studying at the Moscow Conservatory. Oh, and very he, nice. Yeah, and he was accepted into the Composers' Union in the 1930s. He would work in a number of different musical genres, including composing actually a lot of film scores. He actually composed about 25 film scores with very patriotic themes during his time. Um, but the thing that we're probably most concerned about as far as his career is concerned is that in 1948, he earned official disapproval for his second symphony and violin concerto. Apparently, his music was found to be decadent and bourgeois. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that makes me very curious. We're going to have to source some of this music now so we can listen to it. Yeah, and there were a number of other big composers who were condemned at the same time during the first All-Union Congress of the Union of Composers. Oh, goodness. Yeah, okay. it seems to have been much more to do with the party than the actual music. As oh, I said. look. Yeah. The worst thing that you can listen to is bourgeois music. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah. So as a result, he needed to find a way back in, mm -hmm. okay, back into favor. And part of that climb where he apologized and tried to rehabilitate himself so that he was acceptable again was Spartacus. 
which would end up actually winning the Stalin Prize once he had finished it. Oh, wow. High okay, praise. look, High that's, a, that's a turnaround. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's the power of Spartacus, my friends. Whenever <laughs> you find yourself in a tight spot that you feel like you just can't come back from, do something with Spartacus. Yeah. So he wasn't, um, he was the composer uh, who composed the music for Spartacus. Um, they'd actually been toying with the idea of doing a ballet of Spartacus much earlier than 1948 when he started um, sort of looking for opportunities um, and he really started working on it in the 1950s. Um, so a man named Nikolai Volkov had come up with a libretto which is basically like the, you know, the story book that you would base the, um, the music on when you're crafting your, your composition. Um, and he added in um, ideas of having uh, female characters as part of this storyline, um, one for each of the main characters, so Crassus and Spartacus. Oh, that's quite an entourage, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> all right. We're heading away from the ancient source material now, but my that friends. But was, that was partially apparently because there are certain... There are certain aspects of, uh, of a ballet that must be done. I didn't really know about this because I don't go to the ballet a lot. But apparently you must have a feature called a pas de deux. You must, yes. Yeah. The yeah. dance of the, of the pair. Yeah. Um, yeah, and these, this is usually the centerpiece of the principal dances. Yes, exactly. So by having these two female love interest characters, it allowed for that particular ballet requirement. Okay, that's yeah. really interesting because usually the, the female dancer will be doing a lot of the really intricate yes. uh, work and the male dancer will be doing a lot of the lifting to enable oh, that's a I lot mean. of this flourish. <laughs> because they would have the partners, not with each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so this places these male figures that are essentially main characters gotcha. in the story yeah, in, yeah. in moments of supporting roles. Yes, 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 yes. Um, depending on how that's choreographed. Well, I think the idea was as well to be able to contrast the type of female figures you're talking about. Okay, so obviously one was meant to be, you know, this corrupt, depraved, Romanish character. Of course. Whereas the other was the ideal, pure, faithful Soviet wife and woman. I'm not seeing a lot of uh, original content so far in the way that women are being represented in well, this Well, no. Battle. I mean, this is the thing. It's weird because I say we are looking at it from a Russian perspective, but in a way, this is kind of exactly what happens in most versions of Spartacus, like whether you're talking about Russia or the US. They always tend to have this real moral contrast. Mm. Anyway. Um, so this, this whole this libretto was kicked around for a while. Um, they... Various like ballet houses in Russia were looking at it, Leningrad's Kirov and Moscow's Bolshoi. Um, but eventually, it was a man named Le Leonid Jakobsen who approached Kachaturian and asked him to actually do something with the libretto and set it to music. And he obviously saw this as you know his way back in, and he was right because it was. Um, <laughs> he did he did certainly win the approval of the Soviets, who saw in the storyline and the production that it was an allegory. Spartacus and the slaves rising up like the Russian people had to overthrow their oppressors, which in the case of Russia would be the Tsarist regime. However, a lot of people see it being a bit of a, a sneaky move where Kachaturian could potentially have been alluding to Stalin as being the evil oppressor. Yeah, and an invitation to rise up against. Exactly, yeah. So I guess... Yeah, I guess it, we can't be 100% sure, but certainly Kachaturian was one of the earliest artists to approach the government after the death of Stalin, which happened around the time he was actually finishing the ballet, um, and ask for more freedom 
from the government for artists to work within. Um, and he definitely had lost friends under the regime. So I, I can kind of see that that being, you know, a deliberate... But then again, is that just something that is inherent in Spartacus's story that you can kind of read into it, whatever you will? Like, whatever you think of the oppressors and whoever you think of the oppressed, you can kind of see... The, the morality is still the same, isn't it? I think, it, yeah. yeah, I think it's a, it can always serve a dual purpose. And this is part of what makes it so fascinating. Yeah. And the idea that it stands as an allegory well, allegories by their very nature tend to be ambiguous. So yeah. the way that you go about reading an allegory is to look for patterns. And if you can see a pattern closer in time than perhaps the one that's stated as the proper illusion, well, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't think you can discount the the uh, the plural meanings yeah. on offer. Exactly. Yeah, because I, I have a quote here from Catacherian himself, and I don't think it clears up matters at all. So here you go. <laughs> I thought of Spartacus as a monumental fresco describing the mighty avalanche of the antique rebellion of slaves on behalf of human rights. When I composed the score of the ballet and tried to capture the atmosphere of ancient Rome in order to bring to life the images of the remote past, I never ceased to feel the spiritual affinity of Spartacus to our own time. Mm, I know that wasn't well, a Russian accent at that all. Doesn't clear up, <laughs> frankly, clears up nothing for me. <laughs> but yeah, he obviously saw something. What that something was... Can I mean, you be a little bit more specific? Our times, is this like the last 50 years or is it just the last five? I know, it's crazy. <laughs> anyway, so um, it was really interesting when they started to actually put it together. Okay, in that Spartac- uh, Spartacus, Stalin had died just as... Uh, it's Kach- a Freudian slip, know, my friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> had died just as Kasturin was finishing work on the ballet. And what they ended up doing with it in terms of the choreography was actually um, quite modern and wouldn't have appealed to Stalin at all because the actual production premiered in the, at the Kirov in 1956. Um, and so they got rid of things like point shoes, tutus. Um, there were no sort of pirouettes. It was much more um, Isadora Duncan inspired, which is much more free flowing um, sort of movement for those of you who are familiar with dance. Look, it's a big deal to get rid of the point shoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was quite unusual. They were going for something very different. The audience at the time who foresaw it apparently had sort of didn't really know what to do with it all the time. But the people who danced it and the people who could appreciate dance really loved it. So, for example, apparently the teenage Nureyev was quite taken by the production and was really into it. Um, however, it was hugely epic. I guess with Kachaturian's background and the kinds of music that he worked with, it was truly epic. It was like three and a half hours worth of music. Oh, that is a lot of ballet. Yeah, exactly. And so there have been various interpretations and versions of it over the years. Um, so in 1958, the Bolshoi actually decided to stage the uncut version. But it, wasn't, it didn't go particularly well because the main dancer could not sustain the, yeah, the amount of dancing required. And that particular version was never really revived. And then in 1962, <laughs> the Bolshoi asked to revive it for when they went on a tour of the US to sort of show off Russian dancing. Um, but again, it wasn't particularly well received. The way that they chose to stage it, the fact that they didn't have, like they, they had to use American 
extras who didn't really know what they were doing meant that it didn't really go down particularly well. And of course, 1962, oh, look, the Cold War. Yeah, you're yeah. deep in a period of time where they're like, but couldn't we just watch the film? Well, precisely. <laughs> and only two years previously, obviously, the film had come out and was a massive success. So with all of that colouring, it, it ended up being cut from the US tour. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it, it seems to have had a bit of a... Uh, what's the word? A rocky ride. Yeah, a rocky ride. Yeah, a bit of a false start in, in some ways. Um, but in 1968, there were new productions that were put on in both Moscow and Budapest. Um, the one that was put on in Budapest was created by one of their premier dancers, a man called Laszlo Serigi. And was actually that that particular version was adapted by the Australian Ballet in 1978. Oh wow! Yeah, so, so this isn't the first production. The one that's out right now has just finished. Wasn't the first time the Australian Ballet have actually. Okay, because yeah. I feel like they were billing it as like a premiere. Well, I mean, obviously 1978. It's been a while. Like, yeah, there's but no way know, I could have possibly guys, seen I mean, it. when you talk about a premiere, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about the first time. <laughs> yeah, but the, the main version that's become the sort of standardized version that really um, made this particular ballet a, a sort of staple of the Russian dance scene was the Bolshoi version saved by Yuri Grigorovich. Okay, and it basically made this particular ballet a, um, a sort of neoclassical masterpiece. It went for a very straightforward plot line, you know, Crassus versus Spartacus, um, and had plenty of, um, you know, sort of opportunities for glamorous dancing, and they had the female characters in it. So, and that's become the really sort of Bolshoi staple okay like. yeah. and that's based on the same original music but just adapted it's this... always based on the same music okay. but yeah that, as i say because because the original music is so long mm. you'll always probably see there's like, a lot to pick from exactly if you're yeah. going to do a shorter yeah, yeah. exactly okay. so you'll always probably be seeing a, a, an interpretation of it if you will even after the collapse of the usr in 1990 it has been staged in other countries um, so I believe the Paris Opera Ballet has done a version, um, and I believe the Royal Ballet has also done a version. So it has been picked up even after the collapse of the USSR, um, even though it obviously became, it sort of became a, a message, I suppose, that people apparently would be staging it saying, you know, like, look how amazing the Russians are, you know, with this like incredible dancing that they do and this sort of message the, of the, the Superman. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I want to see footage now of like, like previous performances yeah, to get a yeah. sense of like, what is this physicality that the Russians are bringing to this particular yeah, ballet? Yeah, well, that, I think that's what, that's what they were going for with that, um, that Grigorovich version of it, which has been staged a number of times, even in the 2010s, I believe. But that's why it's become a sort of staple because it shows off uh, it shows a particular side of Russia that, that they are proud of and want to showcase. Um, now, the particular version that I saw, as I said, it is going to be slightly different to the version that other people have seen because they cut it down from three and a half hours to about one and a half hours, or just a little over one. And a Most half of hours. the story is gone, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it did work quite well. So, would you like to hear a little bit about this? I would love to. Tell me more. Okay, so. There is a big street parade, which was a fantastic opening number, I have to say, uh, where Crassus is coming back from war in Thrace. Yes, Crassus is <laughs> okay. coming back from war in Thrace. Okay, Crassus is coming <laughs> back from war in Thrace. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, historical accuracy, number one. Uh, and, it, you know, the prisoners are being paraded through, amongst which, of course, is Spartacus and his wife, who in this version is called Flavia. I can see why they've done it, but I'm very unhappy right now. Yeah, look, historical accuracy is not number one on on the scoreboard here. 
Uh, and then, Are you and telling then me that Crassus <laughs> and Spartacus knew each other before they met in the final battle? I know, I know. Um, so Spartacus and Flavia are sold off at a slave auction and Crassus buys Flavia for himself because, of course, she's hot. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Spartacus, of course, is appalled at this, seeing his wife's um, sold off to Crassus, apparently the conqueror of Thrace. And so he tries to fight, you know, to save her. This act of rebellion brings him to the attention of someone else who's at the slave auction, a man named Batiatus, a local gladiator trainer. And so Spartacus ends up being bought to fight in the ring, along with his friend, Hermes. I'm very unhappy. <laughs> Just oh. go with it, Dr. D. Just go with I'm it. I'm very yeah. unhappy. I'm I believe... I, isn't it the case, though? Yeah. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because it's quite possible that I am. But I feel like most of our source material suggests that Spartacus and his wife might have been taken as slaves together. There is one reference to that in okay. Plutarch, yeah. So that, I'm not, I'm not laughing at that. I'm just, uh, I'm enjoying. Oh uh, yeah, I'm like they've drawn uh, the characters um, so intricately into the into the circles of each other um, that it's hard to see how historical accuracy could happen at this point. But I suppose I should expect less from a ballet. You, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like you have to obviously, you have to make choices, like with anything. But now Spartacus is fighting for love. But it, that's that's often the way that they go with creative pieces. I mean, that's. Yeah, that's often what he is fighting for in... I mean, not, not the only reason. But it's, I mean, it's okay to fight for political rights. <laughs> I know, but as you know, in, in like the films and books and that kind of thing, it's not uncommon to have him fighting for a love interest as well as other reasons. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so Batiatus takes in Hermes and his friend Spartacus, and they both, of course, have a natural gift for the arena. And so they end up being just as good as his already established fighter of a guy called Crixus. Oh, Crixus, yay! Yeah, yeah. I love Crixus. Yeah, so Crixus in, is mentioned in quite a number of sources alongside Spartacus. He seems to have been a, uh, in our language, I suppose, like a kind of lieutenant or, or a second-in-command or even co-leader in a sense. It's, it's a bit unclear, but I, I always think he definitely was slightly underneath Spartacus in the, in the ranking system, um, in the source material. So... Throwing Crixus's name in there makes total sense. Anywho, so Spartacus, of course, is dreaming of being reunited with his wife, Flavia, but in the meantime, his life is a living hell in which he must fight for the entertainment of Romans. In fact, there are some games that are put on to honour Crassus, and Spartacus is forced to fight his friend Hermes. Puh, puh, puh. Insult upon insult. Yeah. So, Spartacus and Hermes have this uh, very long, drawn-out fight dance scene, <laughs> a la West Side Story. Ooh, a fight. <laughs> dance fighting. Exactly. The best kind the best of fighting. It is. Um, and Spartacus is forced to kill his friend Hermes, and of course he is repelled by the deed that he has been forced to commit. Okay, he feels very unhappy about that. Okay, and that kind of brings us to um, the end of Act 1, uh, more or less. Okay. okay. Because at All the right. end of this act, he's so horrified by what he has done that he incites his fellow slaves to break free from their chains <laughs> and fight for freedom. Woo. Yeah. So, Act Two, we meet Flavia, who is living as a slave in Crassus's villa. And of course, Crassus is, as all Romans are in these sorts of interpretations, very decadent, corrupt, lecherous. Yeah, exactly. All the, all the bad things, all the bad things. Uh, now, the slaves, of course, have come to rescue Flavia. So they come to Crassus's villa, they confront Crassus, they rescue Flavia. Spartacus did have the opportunity to kill Crassus, but he decides he's not going to. He decides he's going to be merciful 
Oh, what a mistake. Yeah, he's just that nicer guy, and he and his followers flee the villa. And that's the end of Act 2. In the, wow, yeah, in okay. The, in the version that I saw. Oh, uh, this is yeah. gonna, he's gonna regret that. <laughs> and also, like, just rocking up to Crassus's villa. Yeah, hello. Hello. <laughs> Believe you have my wife here. Uh, okay, so Act 3, the big one, of course. So Spartacus and Flavia are able to revel in being reunited and in their newfound freedom. Is this where the pot of dew comes from? Yes, exactly. I believe it is. Um, but Spartacus knows that it won't be forever. He knows that the Romans will track them down. Oh. <laughs> and so, of course, we get to the final battle when Crassus has summoned all his legions and comes to seek revenge upon the slave army. Of course, it's a very drawn-out affair. It's, it's actually it was pretty spectacular to see um, in ballet form. Like they did a spectacular job, um, and they fight to the very end. But alas, 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 the slaves lose. Damn. Yeah. And, Again. Yeah. And every they, time, what they decided to do in this version was that Spartacus um, and his followers would be the ones that survived the battle would be sentenced to death by crucifixion along the Appian Way. Oh. Which is true in the sense that there were 6,000 slave survivors that were crucified along the Appian Way. Spartacus being one of them is dubious. Our sources mm. don't indicate that. But this provides the opportunity for Flavia, his wife, to come and... Do uh, some see, crying? <laughs> well, do some beautiful dancing in front oh. of the men being crucified. So um, she, she sort of dances along and the message of her final dance is meant to be that his legacy will live on, that his memory will live on, that she will, she will make sure because she was not captured. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it turns out that, you know, she has a much expanded role in this ballet um, and perhaps can be credited with the legacy of Spartacus. Yeah, which is like eerily similar to the Kubrick film, which is why I'm kind of interested in it. And as I say, that is just an interpretation. Even the names do change um, in other versions of things. Okay, so depending on which version of the ballet you've seen, you might have slightly different characters. And I should perhaps have mentioned that she's not necessarily a major part of the version that I saw, that Crisis does have a female sidekick as well who is dressed very differently and and she does do more sort of sensual sexy dancing so they did go down that path yeah okay, okay. anyway so i think this is a really interesting interpretation why let me tell you don't <laughs> please do yeah i so, want to know it all <laughs> so the people at the australian ballet who are working on this particular version um, mostly a man named jervis Jervi, i believe his name is um who was the main driver of this particular production um he thought that this was an important story to tell now okay and that is because he thought spartacus was the kind of leader that we should be looking for to support right now someone who to quote him is not an egotistical megalomaniac who's just in it for himself wait a minute yeah <laughs> yeah uh, if yeah. we pause that sentence <laughs> yeah and it's clearly they clearly make reference in some of the news articles that have come out about this particular production about this being a time to make it because of things like the trump era mm. so this isn't just about ancient rome it's about totalitarian regimes through history and into the present day so they clearly see this ballet as having uh, a resonance with people now um and it wasn't something that I think that they were necessarily... Like, Jervis was um, interested in this story, I think, more because of the music. 
but he became more and more interested in the political dimension, also says he, as he became more aware of the history of Spartacus and the slave revolt. Okay, I'm interested then in the fact that it's staged in Australia. Yeah. Um, and it's coming out of the Australian ballet because... I think there are perhaps elements of the Australian political context which you could read into you this could. as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because they, they definitely see Katachurian as seeing Spartacus as a sort of oppressed artist representing, obviously, the oppressed people of Russia. And they definitely saw Crassus as me- meant to be representing Stalin. Not They're definitely going for that interpretation that it's not about the the Tsarist regime and the overthrow of the Tsarist regime, they definitely see it as being more of a veiled reference to what was happening in Russia when Katarina created the ballet. Okay. Yeah, and you can definitely see that, I think, in the... Um, I, I, I was quite interested in their interpretation of Spartacus himself and what they went for, you know, in showing him off. So they chose as their male lead a man called Kevin Jackson. And the reason why they chose him was that they thought he was a muscular dancer but also someone who had sensitivity because... Spartacus was this leader, but he's also a sensitive New Age guy. Oh, a snag. Yeah. A pacifist, a hunk, not just a savage killer, a leader, a friend, a lover. When he lashes out, it's because someone he loves is in danger. That's always when he lashes out in in their particular, particular, too many Russian names, particular production. Um, Yeah, so... I thought that was quite interesting. Okay. Yeah. And when you look at the, um, in the program, they provided a little history of who Spartacus was. And definitely the source material that they're looking at was definitely, they were certainly focusing on the positive stuff that came out. They do acknowledge that there is, um, that there is a bit of tension, obviously, in the interpretations of Spartacus, but they're definitely going with the line of, first of all, they reference Varro. Now, there's a tiny little bit of Varro that's preserved about Spartacus, which is fragmentary, and we don't really know what the context was, so I always think it's very risky to base too much on this. But Varro does indicate that Spartacus was condemned for no good reason, that he was somehow innocent of whatever he was accused of. We don't really know what the context was, though. So, again, like we're reading a lot into that, but they mention that in particular. They also focused on people like Sallust and Plutarch, who talk about Spartacus as, okay, yeah, he is this gladiator and blah, blah, blah. But they also talk about him as heroic, Hellenic rather than Thracian, you know, those sorts of good qualities. So I think it's really interesting that they choose to highlight the very positive sides of Spartacus. Oh, yeah. And trying to sort of create a gentle human face onto a political insurgent as well yeah um i don't think any of the characters in this particular narrative historically wise in this ballet um have a clean slate at all um no no i mean and and even one of the sources that tends to be a bit more negative about spartacus is a historian called florus and i was interested when i saw that they mentioned him because i was like oh that doesn't really fit with the other stuff that they're citing here but what they talk about how um what what they use him for is that Yes, Flora says that you know, Spartacus and his followers commit terrible deeds, but they also, um, he also follows Roman customs, and that's something they respect him for. So, for example, it's in Flora that we get reference to um, Spartacus holding funeral games, so using Roman prisoners to fight to the death. 
So <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a bit of a conflict of interest. I know they, um, they sort of they're sort of looking for any excuse I think to praise Spartacus or cast yes. him some in a, in a good light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose the thing that I find more dangerous in this moment is the idea that they're combining the sensitive new age <laughs> character yeah. and being like it, this because he's so nice it justifies his violence when he is violent. Um, yeah, and I find that that sort of well, reading I mean, maybe. A little bit uncomfortable in our current time period. I, I, I'm certainly yeah. not uncomfortable for the historical Spartacus. Sure, yeah. But the idea that you can be both a sensitive guy, but then violence is okay and acceptable in certain moments. Hmm. Well, this I, is the thing. I mean, I get that obviously Spartacus, the historical Spartacus, was forced into a violent role. You know, he was forced to be a gladiator. I get that. And I get that if you want to fight for your freedom, you know, you have to take up weapons in this particular time. And I don't think that makes him a bad person or anything like that. But he definitely did commit deeds like sacrificing captured prisoners. Um, I mean, if we believe certain accounts, he also slaughtered... Um, he, he slaughtered prisoners as well as, you know, like pack animals and basically anything that was going to slow their journey down at a certain point in the slave war um so yeah i believe that spartacus was obviously a person who lived in a certain time and yeah i don't, I don't believe in praising all his acts of violence some of them from my standards went beyond what was necessary but at the same time i mean he is he's living in a brutal world so yeah the idea that he was like this sensitive new age guy does seem it does seem a little yeah. bit maybe of a contradiction yeah in like, terms. i mean he probably was a brutal character by necessity and there's nothing wrong with that because it was the circumstances in which he lived. But yeah, representing him as someone who's like soft and cuddly. <laughs> um, you know, he's a sensitive chap. Yeah, but this is, this is what Spartacus always is. This is why I always find him so interesting. He is a bit of a blank slate for people to project things onto. And clearly, I think the message was the thing that they were going for. So they deliberately designed the sets. Um, so Kaplan worked with Jervis, the, the main choreographer. Um, to create a set that was going to support the message of this particular ballet, which was all about um, authoritarian regimes. So they took as their inspiration, inspiration various totalitarian forms of architecture. So they looked at um, the Nazis, they looked at North Korea, as well as obviously the Soviets themselves. They looked at a range of different things. They were particularly fixated on aspects like the Berlin Wall. And there was this really interesting scene, I must admit, when the slaves rise up. They had this um, gigantic finger that was definitely modelled um, on the Constantine, Constantine hand. Yeah. <laughs> and what they do is when they rise up, they're able to clamber all over this and then topple it. So you actually see them pull it down oh, on nice. the stage. Okay. So the finger is pointing directly at the audience. And that was obviously meant to evoke um, anti-Soviet protesters pulling down the statues of Lenin and Stalin, as well as the destruction of the Berlin Wall, as well as more modern... Um, events like the toppling of statues of Saddam Hussein. So they were they were definitely trying to bring in, yeah, the, yeah, that, that, that sort of message. unify these elements yeah. of like you know what are the symbols of trying to take down a totalitarian regime. Exactly, and I found it really interesting that for that final scene that we were talking about, like with the crucifixion and Flavia dancing her farewell, and you know, don't worry, I, I will preserve your memory. <laughs> um, I found it really interesting that there was no mention of the Kubrick film because I, I feel like that's an obvious parallel um and where the inspiration must have come from but they they did acknowledge that they did go for a sort of biblical reference with the crucifixion i suppose that's that's what that's what they were kind of going for because it was the idea of resurrection and the idea of leaving the audience with a sense of hope 
Oh, okay. Well, there's nothing yeah. like a crucifixion to leave you with a <laughs> sense of hope, is there? Yeah, so that's, uh, I suppose, I, I found it really interesting looking into some more detail because I had never really, I, I was aware of the Soviet historiography side of Spartacus, but I haven't, I'd never made it my focus. So it was kind of interesting to look back and see how there are so many similarities and yet some really big differences between the interpretations of Spartacus over the years. I think it's really quite fascinating and I think it's a testament to um, oppression and what do you do um, in cases where you are oppressed and it's like you need some sort of narrative to focus in on and Spartacus leaves himself open for this absolutely um, through the way that we engage with him in the source material and the fragmentary nature of that and the fact that when we get into this period of Roman history Rome has established itself as the dominant power in the Mediterranean, no question. Yes. And and yet, for two years, somebody can run around on the inside of the Italian peninsula and, and wreak havoc. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and come close enough that people legitimately feared he was going to attack Rome itself. Yeah. Never did, but... <laughs> But the Probably fear, thought about it. The fear was there. <laughs> yeah. So look, if you are interested in uh, pursuing any of the various things that we've talked about today, there are lots of books on Spartacus out there. We've got quite a list on the Kubrick film and fast interpretations on our website. Um, but you might also consider checking out um, various articles by people like Duncan Cooper, Henry McAdams. And I believe there is a forthcoming volume, which I'm really excited about, by John Bockener, which looks amazing. It looks at huge amounts of um, different interpretations of Spartacus. It covers a lot of ground. Ooh, so this keep, sounds like a good yeah, present. <laughs> exactly. Keep your eyes peeled for that. I, I've been lucky enough to uh, to see a little bit of the work in progress and it really, really looks amazing and covers a lot of ground. So, oh. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Radness. Oh, thank you All for of your me. expertise. Oh, look, I've really was, enjoyed learning so much more about this topic. It was a, an amazing production. Honestly, visually, it was stunning and it was really interesting to see Rome on in a ballet because I never really thought about it before but when you're putting together costumes for Rome in this sense they as they were talking about in the program because I also drew a lot of information from what they put out themselves um they were talking about how they obviously had to get like these sort of military outfits but with material that wasn't going to hurt anyone <laughs> because the dancers are obviously rubbing up against each other and all that kind of stuff so we're like oh your breastplate just touched my breastplate oh yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> I, I was I was honestly enthralled I thought it was an amazing production and I could definitely even before I looked at the program I could definitely get the sense of the authoritarian regime message coming through and the sort of visuals that they used particularly in the big set pieces it was really stunning Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you.